Hello and welcome to this podcast from Blackwell Online. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Ian Mortimer, author of 1415, Henry V's Year of Glory. Ian comes to Henry V, having already written lives of his predecessors, Edward III and Henry IV. But in 1415, he does something new. He tells the story of the year day by day, so that the themes, great and small, emerge gradually, and he conveys the rhythms of the medieval year and the preoccupations of the medieval mind. And so, by October 1415, as the battle with the French looms, the reader has a sense of what has led up to it day by day, month by month, and just how much is at stake for Henry. Ian begins his narrative on Christmas Day 1414. I asked him to tell me what was on Henry's mind on the eve of what would turn out to be his year of glory. Well, there's no doubt that he was already planning to go to war in France. That decision in his mind had been made. He had to compromise yet in sending another embassy. Uh, He had recently at that point sent another embassy to France, supposedly to negotiate a permanent peace. In reality, to force the French into throwing in the towel and refusing to negotiate further, giving him carte blanche to go to war. But he had another pro- number of problems. On the Welsh border, he had the, the difficulties arising from Glendower's re- rebellion. Glendower was now an old man. He was sick. The, the, the force had gone out of his rebellion. But there was still terrible devastation across Wales and a number of social problems uh, arising from the destruction of the previous 10 years. I mean, Scotland, his father had led, uh, Henry V's father, had led the, the last uh, um, expedition towards trying to, to recapture Scotland for the English throne, had left in ignominy, and um, Henry basically just had a vulnerable border there. It was likely that the Scots were going to make incursions, and he had to rely on family members, notably uh, the Earl of Westmoreland, Ralph Neville, to try and hold the border for him. He had problems internally in the country, and Lollardy was really at his height in 1414. Henry himself had seen one of his friends, Sir John Oldcastle, take a a number of people and proclaim a, a heretical rebellion against him. So, Religious questions, political questions, all these are alongside the question of whether he's going to go to war in France, which, of course, in his mind, is the uppermost and most important one, because he could demonstrate through war that he was genuinely the right man to rule England. Because if there's any backdrop to this on Christmas Day 1414, it's the dynastic issue of whether the Lancastrians really are the the favoured family to be ruling the country. This is a big question still in 1414, and it it continues to be so. And in 1415, the year itself, there is a a rebellion to try and get rid of uh, Henry V as king and to impose, dare I say it, the Mortimer family in his place. Edmund Mortimer would not have made a good king. It is not much to be regretted. But the way Henry V dealt with that situation itself speaks of anger and consternation and worry, which was certainly there at the beginning of the year too. So he had a lot on his plate. I mean, it seemed to me that all of that could sort of be summed up by the word legitimacy. That was the, the sort of the root of the quest was to, to establish the legitimacy of the House of Lancaster. Absolutely. I mean, it had been the, that key word is a great word to pick up on. It really has characterised his entire existence. I mean, he's born in 1386 and his father, the Earl of Derby, is the male heir if Richard II uh, dies without a uh, uh, throne. Um, the, the order of inheritance laid down by Edward III would have meant that the Richard II's throne should have passed then to John of Gaunt, then to Henry IV, and then Henry V. So he's growing up the first years of his life, being led to believe that he's you know, third in line to the throne. Then his father is pushed away by Richard II, eventually is forced into exile, has all his inheritance confiscated, all his lands confiscated, and Henry V finds himself now the son and heir of a man who's not next in line to the throne, but is 
an exile and declared a traitor. And this, of course, impacts on his own ideas of legitimacy, because where is God in all this? The, the King of England at this time is a man who is particularly conscious of his relationship with God, not just on a personal basis, but on behalf of his whole kingdom. Now, if Henry was really God's chosen king, and in waiting, as it were, then what, what is going to happen? There must have been huge doubt in his mind throughout his youth. Then, of course, his father saw so many rebellions, so many armed uh, attempts on his life that Henry V must have really despaired whether he was going to live long enough to inherit. And um, what happens if uh, one of these rebellions is successful and not only removes his father, but perhaps kills him too, and his brothers perhaps puts the Mortimers on the throne, perhaps comes up with some spurious Richard II and puts him on the throne. I mean, his entire life as a young man must have been a series of questions of doubt. I think his putting his energies into prayer and fighting in Wales was probably the best he could do to sort of find some reassurance and stability with all these doubts uh, and this, this big question, is he the legitimate King of England? And then the months that ensue see a twin track approach, you might say. There's a diplomatic mission and discourse with France, but at the same time there's very serious preparation for war going on in England. Very serious. It's almost... Um, well, I will go so far as to say it's almost tedious in its repetition, the number of orders there are to prepare this, prepare that. You get a very clear sense of how complicated it is to prepare an overseas expedition. If you're going to take um, 13,000, 15,000 men abroad, most of them with horses, probably more than 15,000 horses with you, you have to get the ships, you have to get the mariners, you have to get all these people to the right place, you have to equip them, you have to find food, you have to keep the law and order while they're all gathering. And if you're going to take 9,000 archers and you're going to equip them with um, 100 arrows each, then you're going to have to have an awful lot of arrows made. You're going to have to transport those arrows, likewise the bows. The amount of organisation in staging an overseas expedition is utterly extraordinary. And I think historians have tended to take them for granted because there were so many expeditions in the Hundred Years' War. And of course Edward III had set a pattern which was continued for, for many years. He was a past master at it. So when Henry V comes along and you look at it um, in great detail and you see the, his determination to succeed, coupled with the level of uh, preparation necessary, you start to engage with the preparations in a totally different way. You, you, you understand why there are so many orders, why there are commissions to people to go and confiscate woodworkers or stonemasons or, or simply wagons. One of the interesting little sidelights that you cast on this preparation for war was the fact that he was not above pawning religious treasures in order to raise funds. And that, from a king who is outwardly exceedingly pious, was quite a shock. It was. Realising that and thinking through the implications of that was one of the, the nice epiphany moments in the book. Now, there was a precedent for pawning uh, religious treasure, um, I beg your pardon, royal treasure. Edward III had pawned the crowns of England. He'd pawned a number of uh, religious items. Edward III wasn't particularly religious. He was averagely religious. Henry V, who clearly modelled this expedition on the Cressy expedition of 1346, led by Edward III, he, he sees this as a religious expedition first and foremost. He is going to prove to people that God favours him in battle. So therefore the, the preparations have to be meticulous. But the expense required him to look for all possible resources. Because Henry V really thought of the 1415 campaign as a, a, a demonstration of religious favouritism, he is able to draw on religious uh, resources to support him. He, he believed he was doing God's work. 
This book is not just about the Battle of Agincourt, but you wouldn't have chosen a 1415 but for the Battle of Agincourt, I imagine. And I wanted to ask you how you approached writing about it, given it's been written about by so many people for so many centuries before. What did you, what did you hope that you could bring to it by writing about it? Well, largely to divorce our idea of what is unfolding in the chapter on October 1415 from all of the hagiography, the propaganda that's been written since. I mean, don't get me wrong, there are many very good books on Agincourt, and Agincourt New History by Anne Curry is a superb book. I'd like to sort of flag that one up in particular. Um, but Having said that, these are all written with a preconceived idea of what Henry V was, what he means to people. And I wanted to get away from that sort of post agincourt post-victorious idea of king, the, the supremely confident man, and especially away from the, the Shakespearean idea of a charming sort of uh, uh, uber king, and get back to the nitty-gritty of an extremely scared man who basically was exceptionally brave. He had... So many failings, I do not like the man at all. But the one thing I cannot take anything away from is his utterly remarkable courage. Um, he put everything on the line. He staked his kingdom, his dynasty, his life, everything to prove himself in this religious sense in battle in France. And he stayed the course. You know, His courage was never really found wanting, despite having to make some extremely dangerous decisions in France once he was uh, on, on, on foreign territory. So... I wanted to get that across, the unfolding man. But at the same time, I mean, as you say, many other things are happening. You have the Council of Constance happening in, uh, on the other side of Europe, which, although it was a long, long way away, was of very great interest to Henry because, as a pious man, he wanted to know not only was God going to see the, the Christendom reunited under one pope, but also who was going to be that pope, how he was going to relate to the other nations within Christendom after that pope had been uh, elected. There are lots of very important questions in his mind. How he's going to get on with the Holy Roman Emperor, Sigismund, for, for uh, another example. How that council was going to judge his burning people alive for heresy, Lollardy. So all sorts of questions. Now, if you treat these two subjects separately, Agincourt and Constance, and if you divorce all these subjects, you may well end up with a good book about Agincourt or a good book on Constance. But from Henry V's point of view, it's the integration of these that really matters. And the timing, of course, is all important because these don't all have a separate narrative. They're all part of one narrative. So as Agincourt is coming nearer, so the resolution at Constance is coming nearer. So the treachery of a certain uh, Duke of Burgundy is becoming clear. So are the multiple diplomatic arrangements that Henry has in place with almost every country in Europe. And of course these waver, and they are subject not just to what's Henry's planning to do in France, they're subject to uh, what's going on in Constance and everywhere else throughout Europe too. So you have to bear in mind lots and lots of multiple narratives, all compressed into this one. Yes, Agincourt is not just one story. But the defining moment of his life and the defining moment, perhaps, for his, his posthumous legend is the decision to attack, not to wait for the French to attack, but to, yeah. to go on the offensive. Yes, I mean, that was the, the, the final remarkable decision of a series of them. Uh, and the, the, his plan for Harfleur, the siege of Harfleur, although the siege of Harfleur was successful, it wasn't a good plan because he ended up destroying so much of the town, he, he severely imperiled uh, the place. It made it very difficult for him to hold it, so he had to leave 1,200 men to look after Harfleur. He then marched in the style of Edward III, in the footsteps of Edward III, towards um, 
uh, the crossing on the Somme, which is known as Blanche Tac. Unfortunately, the French had read their history books too, and they got there first, and they managed to put such a force there that Henry was persuaded he could not cross at that point. Edward III had fought his way across, Henry V decided he couldn't. Now, which is very interesting. But Henry then decides he's not going to turn back. He's not going to turn towards the coast. He's going to go inland into the really dangerous territory where he's totally cut off. Uh, and he's still on the south side of the Somme. The idea to march in the first place was an extraordinary brave decision. The idea to march inland after his army was beginning to run out of food, that was an even braver decision in the circumstances. And then he got across the river and the decision on the 25th of October to go straight for the enemy and not wait to be attacked as every uh, uh, army had in the, in, uh, the archer based army had from England in the, in the past 70 years he decided to take the fight to the French he took them totally by surprise on the field of battle and won a re remarkable victory there was a series of decisions there and that last one is yeah takes the biscuit <laughs>